It is really, really great to have the opportunity to get a chance to speak on the Gospel of Luke tonight. Uh, Pastor Brandon has been so gracious to me. I've tried to say that so that y'all know that, but he's been tremendously gracious, and to give me the opportunity to get a chance to share some on Wednesday nights is also a huge blessing. So thank you. It'll get easier to listen to me when you got food to eat at the same time. And so next week, if it's tough tonight, you can say, well, better days are coming. I'd sit and listen to just about anything if I have fried chicken uh, right there with me. So next week, you can eat and come right along and, uh, and, and enjoy and, and all of that. But I'm excited tonight to get a chance to begin a series on the gospel. Of Luke. And so we'll be walking through that bit by bit, Lord willing. And our plan will kind of be, since Luke is 24 chapters long, that we're going to kind of go in and out of that. Maybe on, in August, being in Luke, in September, perhaps having a special topic and kind of weaving in and out. I remember hearing a story years ago about Puritan pastors in the early colonial days, back when everybody legally had to go to church on Sunday, what that must have been like, that the law told them they had to be there and they had no choice. And so some of these Puritan pastors started competing with one another to see who could go through a book the longest uh, without taking a break. One Puritan pastor, the book of Hebrews, for 37 years, his church got nothing but the book of Hebrews. Now, I like Hebrews, but I imagine our attendance would drop if after 37 years we had not gone to another book. So we're not going to be in Luke for 37 years, Lord willing. Uh, but we're going to get a chance to dive in bit by bit. Now, the first two chapters of Luke, as you might remember, are the Christmas story. And we know that it's the Christmas story because when Charlie Brown calls out, can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? Linus comes to the front of the stage and quotes Luke chapter 2. So that's how all of us know that the foundational uh, uh, story of Christmas in the Bible is in Luke's gospel. And so we'll get a chance to look at Luke 1 and 2 as we get a little bit closer to the holidays. But we're going to start tonight with Luke. Luke 3. I do have some handouts for you. If you saw this, I've got a couple different copies. Now, the ones that I think uh, that Brother, Brother Futrell handed out was uh, the ones with the blanks in there. I don't know about you, but when I listen, it's a lot easier for me to kind of stay with it if I've got a little something to do. If I give you one that's just pre-printed, you'll be sitting there watching it and going, when we get into the end, come on, let's just get down to the bottom. But if you're filling in the blanks, it helps you go with me a little bit and it might make it more entertaining for you. If you get to the end and you say, I missed one or two of them, I've got some copies up here with no blanks. You're welcome to take them with you uh, if you like as well. But we are going to get a chance tonight to talk about Luke's gospel and just to, to have some patient time of, uh, of looking at the unique way in which Luke paints the picture and, uh, and what we gain from that. So if you still need a paper, yes, absolutely, feel free, pass them down. You can grab a stack and hand them down there however you need, but, uh, but we'll, we'll dive into this tonight and enjoy it. About 14 years ago, our, our family gave up cable television whenever the analog stations or, or went to digital and you could now no longer needed the same rabbit ears and, you know, standing there holding the, the, the thing so that the reception could come in. We moved to that and somehow in, in the midst of that, we have got a channel now that plays Bob Ross painting 24 hours a day. Y'all know who Bob Ross is? Bob Ross got the curly hair and ha happy little trees and you know that guy. He's not still alive, but he's alive 24 hours a day on this network, uh, you know, still where you can watch him and tune in painting. And I remember hearing someone say uh, one time, a seminary professor talking about the fact that it's such a blessing that we have four gospel writers who each contribute their perspective, their window, like artists who are each painting their own picture. 
And so if you had Michelangelo and Bob Ross, I don't know if those two have ever been put in the same conversation before, but you had those two and perhaps two other famous painters, Picasso and, and somebody else, you know, uh, Leonardo da Vinci that all sat down together and looked at the same thing and were called to paint the same picture. All those pictures would look different based on the perspective, the gifts, the, all those things of the artists. And when we come to the Gospel of Luke, it's great that we understand and we believe as Baptists the inerrancy of the Bible that God was throughout every bit of what was written and what was delivered to us and at the same time God's sovereign enough to allow people to use their own giftedness their own perspective their own talent and their own you know emphasis areas and we see that in the gospel of Luke if the Gospel of Luke were never written, uh, we would know uh, nothing about some of the stories that I've listed here at the top, you know, there at the very front. There's a widow of Nain who is at a funeral procession for her son, now her being left alone when Jesus enters the town and, uh, and raises her son uh, from the dead. We would not know of that story unless it were for Luke sharing that with us. We would not know the story of Zacchaeus and what in the world would we sing at uh, VBS and in children's classes if there was no Zacchaeus. Luke records that in Luke 19. And in that story, we even see the thesis statement for the whole gospel. The Son of Man has come to, save, or to seek and to save the lost. And so Luke paints this picture of Jesus as the one who's seeking and saving. We wouldn't know about the two men on the road to Emmaus, except for a, a loose mentioning of that at the end of Mark's gospel. We wouldn't know that story that takes up most of Luke 24. I remember preaching on that passage in Romania with a translator, and I never knew how long that passage was until I was having to stop after every verse and wait for the translation. But wonderful story of these two men who recognized Jesus. Luke gives us that. We wouldn't know the parable of the lost coin. We wouldn't know the parable of the, what I call the lost sons. We often think of it as the prodigal son, but you know that lost son that came home had another lost son that was living at home, uh, a lost brother that was living there whose heart was just as hard and cold even though he'd never left. We wouldn't know the story of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus gives, a window into uh, the, the um, urgency of eternity and the urgency of believing. We, we wouldn't see the narrative of the birth of John the Baptist and much of what we see in Luke 1, of two, uh, 1 and 2. We wouldn't see much of the Christmas story from Mary's viewpoint. Interestingly enough, Joseph is almost a footnote in Luke's gospel and Mary is almost a footnote in Matthew's gospel. But between the two of them brought together, we're able to see a window into each perspective. And so Luke paints this great picture uh, Luke was a physician, is how he's uh, referred to, and many of you know he wrote both the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts, and so those are connected. Uh, Luke was a learned man. If, you've ever, if you ever take a, I don't know why you would, Brandon and I were talking about this today, if you ever take a Greek class in a seminary or a Bible college, you're praying that the passage that comes down to you was written by John or it was written by James. If they give you a passage from Luke, you might as well just turn it in and go home. Uh, you're not going to have as easy a time parsing uh, those words and that grammar. Luke was a very brilliant man. And, uh, and in the midst of that, uh, God called Luke, a companion of the Apostle Paul, uh, to be able to compi compile and to come with a, a historical perspective and, uh, and the, the emphasis of a scholar to bring us into who Jesus was. But not a cold scholar, but somebody who was scholarly and at the same time very moved by the action of Jesus in reaching out to people who needed it. So it was a great blessing. So Luke chapter 3, if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. I just want to read a couple verses here at the very beginning. 
It's going to feel like I'm reading the side of the cereal box to, to you here just a little bit, but I'm going to do that here for these first two verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, this is verse 1, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod be, being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Aturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And so Luke begins Jesus's adult ministry in this way, and he's given historical context into that. You know, some of the ways that we're able to figure out the chronology of Jesus's lifetime is from cues that Luke gives us. You think, well, why, why would those details be necessary? Luke probably didn't envision that several thousand years later, there would be folks who were saying, well, we need to figure out exactly when this or that and things that were forgotten in history and otherwise, Luke gives several cues so that we're able to figure out uh, the timeline of when uh, Jesus lived here on earth and where some of those fell and these ruling people and where they were become important historical cues. And Luke even starts out that way so that we would know, you know, uh, when you read the Gospel of John, you see this phrase again and again, the disciple who Jesus loved. And who's John talking about in that? Himself, that's right. And so you see this wonderful emotion and closeness with Jesus and you see that. And then Luke writing in the same way, just as powerfully as a scholar is giving historical cues and giving the data uh, in some ways to present the world that Jesus is, is uh, born into eternal son of God, but coming to earth uh, to wear our flesh and to accomplish for us what we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. And so Luke as well emphasizes several things in his gospel to where if you wanted to find a place in the New Testament to emphasize any of these areas, you can rarely do any better than Luke's gospel. And these are some of them. Number one, God's plan of salvation. Luke emphasizes God's plan of salvation. I mentioned the story of Zacchaeus just a moment ago and Jesus' phrase there that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. You read just before that that Zacchaeus says, here and now I give back, you know, so much of what I've taken and if I've wronged anybody. And then Jesus makes this statement. He says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. You say, well, what does that mean? He was a son of Abraham beforehand, wasn't he? He didn't become Jewish just because he gave all of his things back. But Jesus makes this emphasis to say, today this person has finally become a true heir of the promise. Why? Not because they were born genealogically as a Jewish person, but because they have trusted in the ultimate fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham, and that was Jesus. And so throughout the gospel, you see again and again this weaving towards God's plan uh, for salvation. Luke's gospel is the gospel of the outcasts. Those who wouldn't be, those in society who would be uh, considered and, and, uh, and sometimes brought close, the, the perspective often of women uh, who in that time were just a, a more marginalized group. They weren't listened to. They weren't uh, held in high esteem in different ways. They were almost seen as property in some of the ways of the ancient culture, uh, being so heavily patriarchal. But uh, not only women, but tax collectors, Samaritans, the poor, lepers. Do you know where we get the story of the good Samaritan? Luke's gospel. Not because Luke made it up, but because Luke emphasized this is something that Jesus brought forward so that, uh, that we could hear it and Luke felt it important enough through the action of the Holy Spirit to include uh, what was there. And so Luke recognizes Jesus' heart for those who are far from him. 
Luke also emphasizes Jesus' humanity. Now, that's not at the expense of his divinity, but we get a chance to see a window into Jesus' humanity in a special way in Luke's gospel. Do you know which gospel tells us that there were great drops of blood that were sweat at Gethsemane? It's Luke. There's other times where we get a chance to see a window into Jesus' exhaustion and Jesus' frustration. Jesus' difficulty in different areas, his humanity is brought out. Luke emphasizes prayer in a special way. And throughout Luke, you see again and again, not only Jesus' teaching on prayer, but Jesus' dependence on prayer. And then lastly, we come to a place of, uh, of recognizing what will be one of the major themes of the passage today, and that's repentance. A lot of times the natural verse that's thought about for repentance in the New Testament is in Mark 1 where Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand, now repent and believe the good news or believe the gospel. And certainly that's a great passage on repentance, but naturally throughout Luke we also see this great theme that Jesus has called us to turn away from ourselves and to turn to him. There's this way that a lot of times it has to do with money even in Luke's gospel, but there's this way that you've got to let go of whatever you're holding on to in order to be able to hold on to what the Lord Jesus has called you to. That's why there's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, you know what, I've done everything else. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, to really paraphrase him, says, you're not gonna inherit this. You better leave it all behind and come follow me. And he goes away sad. And so you see this emphasis on repentance and turning uh, to Jesus. Can I show you a few pictures? Yeah, I'm a history guy. I, I like history. Let me show you a little bit here that maybe bring you into the passage a little bit here today too. Uh, here is a, uh, a bust that was made of Emperor Tiberius. We see his name given here at the beginning. If you want an even bigger uh, statue, Tiberius Caesar, you can get this here. Looks like he's got long flowing hair, but he doesn't. It's just a robe that's over the back of his head. This is the only archaeological item outside the Bible that has Pontius Pilate's name on it. Pontius Pilate ruled for 10 years from 26, 27 AD to 36, 37 AD. And this is the only thing we've found in the ground uh, that, uh, that has his name on it, but it proves uh, who he is, apart from money that has been found that bears his name or bears his likeness. You also can see here a coin that has uh, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and so when, when Herod the Great died, his um, empire, I guess, or his, his ruling area was split into uh, different, different regions. And so um, Herod Antipas uh, is represented here. The Tetrarch is, is what's shown here. And then to make you think a little bit about the wilderness for John the Baptist, that he's in the wilderness, that word sometimes translated desert. Uh, you've got a little bit of a view of some of this area uh, near Bethany. And also, doesn't that just look like a great camping trip right there, going there? I don't know whether uh, it, was, it was wilderness more like that, leaning towards the desert, more just like arid landscape. If you looked at it from the sky, uh, it looks more like this, like somewhere you probably don't want to take a hike or don't want to go for too long. Likewise, the Jordan River, when you exit and out of the Sea of Galilee, looks a little bit greener. You can see why maybe Naaman didn't get feel too keen about going down there and uh, and dunking in there I, I, I sort of always picture the Yadkin River in my mind you know if you ever drive over that you probably haven't wanted to go take a swim either 
but, uh, but you've got the Jordan River here. As it gets further down, it begins to look a little bit more like a river that we might be used to. If y'all have ever sang the song, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand, I, I, you know, you sing that beautiful hymn of the faith, but you kind of picture this huge, massive river, and the Jordan River's not that in most places. It's a kind of place if you got a good running start and you were young enough, you might get pretty close to clearing uh, in some areas. Well, we come to the passage tonight where the Jordan River's involved, John the Baptist is involved, the wilderness is involved, and we come to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry as laid down by Luke. And I'd like for us to look, that, uh, look at that tonight. Uh, we're going to begin with verse 3 here in Luke chapter 3. Now, this is speaking about John the Baptist. This is the he that begins this verse. And he, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Can we say a word of prayer as we dive into a few pieces tonight? Lord, we thank you for the fact that the beginning place where you start often in our own hearts is in the wilderness of repentance. And Lord, so many times I know we can get distracted in so many other areas. And I'm guilty, Lord, of, of at times thinking that walking with you starts with busyness. Walking with you uh, starts with, uh, with some other frantic pursuit. But Lord, will you remind us tonight in that gentle, tender, small voice of our need uh, to examine our own hearts and our own lives in light of you and to have that affect our daily personal walk and personal life. So Father, however you would use your word, we thank you that it never returns void. And we ask your blessing and your challenge and your encouragement through it tonight in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. I've often wondered what it would be like to, uh, to be involved in, a, in the kind of service that John the Baptist is involved in here. You read elsewhere in the Gospels that all Judea and all the countryside is coming out to John the Baptist. He was the Billy Graham of his day. 
Imagine seeing Billy Graham draw a huge crowd. I got to see him late in his ministry at the Charlotte Coliseum. That place was so packed we couldn't even get inside. We were outside watching on a big screen. Imagine watching Billy Graham come to the front of the stage, look down upon everybody who was, you know, just so excited to see him. That, that night we were in Charlotte. It was raining through the entire musical portion. And as soon as the music got done, the clouds separated. And Billy Graham came to the front on dry ground. I mean, it was like Moses. It was unbelievable. And you can kind of sense just the, oh, from everybody, you know, there as Billy came up to the podium. Imagine Billy Graham taking the stage, looking down at everybody and saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's not seeker sensitive, is it? That doesn't really do a whole lot to prepare you for your next night of ministry or a big offering. I don't think John the Baptist was passing the plates after this, but he certainly heard his chances saying things like that. You read the Gospels, and one of the things you find out as you read them, if you, I'm sure many of you have, probably more than I have even in, in the, the years that you've been following the Lord, when you read the Gospels, one of the things you see again and again is nobody understands who Jesus is. They don't, do they? They seem to constantly miss who he is. If you were going to make a case that one person understood who Jesus was, you know who you'd make the case for? John the Baptist. Jesus says nobody greater was born of, of woman, and, and John the Baptist, is, 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 he shows again and again the passage that comes after what we read tonight, where he will say, I'm not worthy to tie Jesus' shoelaces, in, in essence, that the water I'm baptizing with is just water, but he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so we see this kind of sense that John the Baptist understands Jesus and the calling uh, that, that the Lord has given him is to prepare the way and to prepare the hearts. And the way that people in that day had to be prepared was by hard truth. And so you know what? I think probably in our hearts and in our lives, there's times we got to be prepared by hard truth as well, that, uh, that we've got to, re to really hear the word of the Lord to say, well, how do we come uh, to the Lord Jesus? And are we trying to somehow come in a way that would dishonor uh, what he's called us to? And so John the Baptist just cuts right to it. You brood of vipers, you people who seem to be lying in wait and lurking and you're perhaps hidden but ready to strike whenever you could. He's speaking not only to the Pharisees but to, to so many others who were there. You brood of vipers. You know, we, we read at the very beginning that John the Baptist has come out of the wilderness. He's come out of the, the desert, perhaps that word could be used in, in some ways uh, in, in that way. He's come out of a place where none of us would, would like to go camping in a, in a, you know, a kind of distant place. And I, I sort of can't help but see in that, you know, sort of coming out at the very beginning that the wilderness and repentance have a connection. The wilderness and repentance have a connection. I got a chance to be in the room when Pastor Blythe was getting the kids, the students ready for camp a few weeks ago. And I got to be in there and pray with them. That was so cool just seeing Blythe interacting and seeing, you know, uh, these other guys that, uh, that, that were there, you know, leaders otherwise, and, and just being excited to get to go to camp. And I got to hear Blythe say these beautiful words, and, and y'all might have heard these before, but this is what he said. He said, all of you are going to give me your phones. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just, it was like music to my ears. I just loved hearing it because I, I thought about the fact that, wow, they're going to be able to, I don't know, uh, you know, the kids here, that the students here have seemed wonderful to me. It's been a huge blessing to get to see them. But, but, you know, on average, the thought we have is that the younger you are, the harder it is to let those things go, isn't it? 
But I think Pastor Blythe recognized, and I think the camp probably recognizes, there's only so much hearing from the Lord you're going to do if you don't distance yourself enough from what's constantly feeding into your heart and mind. In my day, you would have had to sneak a 19-inch television into camp. That was about as close as you could get, but, but now it's so, so much easier. There's this way that the wilderness and repentance are connected. There's got to be a removal of, of us from some things sometimes to hear the Lord clearly. We're not going to hear him so clearly when we're distracted and when we're constantly focused in too many different areas. And sometimes we're not going to hear him as clearly as long as everything's smooth sailing, are we? Sometimes God's got to teach us some things in the low valleys that we don't learn on the high mountains. And so repentance in the wilderness, I think, often have a way of going together. It's there that God prepares John the Baptist, and it's in the wilderness that these people are coming out on the edge of the wilderness, at least at the Jordan and being baptized. There was no great program. I don't think they were probably giving away free snow cones that day. There was nothing except the Lord Jesus or except the Holy Spirit. They were, they were coming to get right with the Lord, and that was enough. The wilderness and repentance have a connection. And the second thing that I'd say in the light of that too is repentance clears the way for God to work in our lives. Repentance clears the way for God to work in our lives. How is it that John the Baptist, who even himself understood only a portion of what the truth of who Jesus was, he he didn't understand enough even to give the clear gospel that Jesus would give. How is it that his ministry could be so valuable when he couldn't communicate the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? How was that? It was because repentance was what was required to set the stage for that that our hearts and lives have to be fertile ground to receive the truth that God would give us. And so repentance becomes really important. Turning, and uh, you know, that simple basic message, repentance is quite literally just turning. And the word literally means that, clearing the way for God to work in our lives. And so we see that Isaiah had already foreseen through what God had given to him that John the Baptist would be the one who was to come, that he was going to be the second Elijah, that he was going to fulfill uh, this passage, that uh, the the rough places becoming level ways and and the mountains being made low, that there was going to be this great leveling out, that whether you were a Pharisee, whether you were a tax collector, whether you were someone who was a Samaritan, someone who was a Jew, that the foot, the foot of the cross was level ground and that people needed to simply approach based on who Jesus was and their need for him, rather than this is what family I was born into, this is how much money I have, this is my historical ties. No, it was going to be turning to the Lord Jesus exclusively. And so John the Baptist walks uh, through this, and and, and we see this language from Isaiah uh, that he was going to be the one who was going to clear the way, that this was going to prepare the stage for people to hear uh, Jesus' words Uh, the way that they should. Verse 8, John's still driving home this tough point, and he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's not who we're connected to, is it? I remember there was a, a, a lady in, in uh, the church that I served before who one night went to the hospital, had a really strange heart incident, 
never happened again, never could find anything that night, but I sat in the waiting room that night, and I've always wondered since then if it was because of the gospel conversation that I had with the man who came and sat down next to me. Maybe all of that was orchestrated just for that, but I remember beginning to talk to him about the Lord and, and kind of going into some of that. He was in extreme pain uh, because of some things that were going on just physically, uh, but he wanted to have a conversation as well, and as we talked, we sort of started to talk about the gospel, and his immediate statement was, my cousin's a preacher. And it's, it's kind of like, well, that's great, but you know that doesn't do anything for you. For them to approach John the Baptist and to say, we have Abraham as our father, or this way of thinking of we're, we're better off as we come into this than some others could be. John is letting them know from the very beginning it's not about that. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. You get that picture? John's painting the fact that even now what's about to take place, if you're not careful, is is. God's ready to strike and your time is, is almost done. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day I to turn from him. As, as the Old Testament says, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Even now the ax is laid and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Third thing, repentance is not outward. It's inward and then it's outward. You know, sometimes we can get into one or two errors we, want to, we think that repentance ultimately means that we're changing our behavior. And so what, I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to start doing that. Well, that shows some sense of an outward sign, but if it doesn't start with the heart, then we're, we're, we're off to a rough start already, aren't we? If I was to buy a fruit tree for my wife and she loves, uh, she loves mangoes, we both like mango a lot. I don't know if mango grow on trees, I think so, but forgive me, if not, I'm just a preacher, not a, not a, you know, a botanist. And so imagine I go and get a mango tree or what I think is a mango tree and plant it in the backyard. I get so excited and I say, you know what, honey, when it comes springtime, I'm gonna have some mangoes for you. You're gonna be real excited. And I wake up one morning and I look out the window early and sure enough, they've grown. But as I look outside, they aren't mangoes, they're apples. I say, oh no. So what I do is I go to the store as quick as I can. Walmart's open early. I go get a whole slew of mangoes. I bring them home. I take off every apple that's on that tree and I get my staple gun and I begin boom, boom, boom. All those mangoes attaching. I might be able to fool her for a little while, but when there's not been a change on the inside, nothing different's going to come on the outside. That God's concerned with our hearts, isn't he? That, that what ultimately matters is what takes place on the inside. And so the first thing we can err in is just saying, well, all we need is a behavior change. No, we need a heart change. But the second error is to say, well, whatever happens on the inside doesn't affect whatever's going on on the outside. That would also be wrong as well. To say, well, I, I, me and Jesus, we, we, we have it together in my heart, but that's not going to affect how I live. That's also not right. So John the Baptist pointing them towards repentance is drawing them both to that same realization that the foot of the cross is level ground and their need to repent, even though, as he's mentioned it from this side, the cross is not something understood yet. But coming to the Lord means accepting that you're the unworthy one and he's the one who is worthy. And in that, that our lives and our hearts need change. And the only way that's going to happen is from the inside, working outward. And our outward lives should reflect what's taking place on the inside of our hearts. You know, kind of right along with that, number four, you know, John the Baptist gives them this rough news and he's just really going to it. Some of you have probably heard some hard sermons before. 
I've given some hard sermons before. That's those days where you walk out of there and you think you're just trying to get to the car before anybody slashes your tires, aren't you? You're just trying to, you know, not hard as in going after anybody personally, but just those hard, hard teachings of the Bible, hard reminders that we all need from time to time. And John the Baptist is relaying to them a, a need for them to understand that. And I think there's this great truth that comes down. You have to grasp the bad news to understand the good news. Somebody walks up to you and they say, well, I got some good news and I got some bad news. What are you going to say? Give me the bad news first, right? Now, the good news is not going to feel like good news unless I already know the bad news. John the Baptist has got to lay the groundwork to say the problem that's here is your own hearts being in need of rescue. And so in order to get to the good news, there's got to be a bad news foundation. Uh, several weeks ago on a Sunday morning, looking at Acts chapter 2, uh, we saw that Peter had to go straight for the fact that the people who were in that audience that day, many of them had been involved in Jesus' crucifixion. And for him to say, you're the one who crucified him. I say, whoa, you've got my attention now. And then he went straight for the hope of the gospel. And so the hope of the gospel is only hope if we understand what's difficult. Repentance is only hopeful when we recognize the ultimate hope's not what we would do, but in turning to Christ, he's the one who takes care of everything else. So we have to grasp the bad news to understand the good news. And the last point is this, the gospel confronts our personal life. The gospel confronts our personal life. How are we going to react? Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 the question that the crowd asked Peter? It's the same as we see here in verse 10. What then shall we do? That's the greatest question. What then shall we do? Because that's the point where somebody says, whatever it takes, I'm ready. What then shall we do? And, and then John begins to answer them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And we say, well, John, okay, but can you take them down the Roman road? Even though I know the Roman road hadn't been written yet. Can you not walk through the standard practices? Have you ever had this in a training class to say you're telling people to give away a tunic? And that's not the kind of things we answer, John. They say, well, yes, it is. John the Baptist speaks into their personal life for what it's going to mean for them in the daily avenues of where they are, who they are, and what they're doing to be submitted to the Lord in their actions. And so it meant for the tax collector that they weren't going to make as much money. I'm sure they'd already justified whatever they were ripping people off for. But he says, no. For the soldier who'd learned to use his might to get out from whatever he could, people who, you know, get, get money or get whatever it was from people to, to wield power, no. You know, I've known some folks in the, in, even in the church world at times who've learned a few tricks in the business world that if they're not careful, they bring that into the church world. And you say, well, no, actually, if you're going to follow Jesus, here's the ways you're going to submit to him, treat other people the right way. And so John the Baptist begins to speak into their lives and to say, for you to follow Jesus, for you to follow the Lord and submit to him, it's going to mean your daily life's going to have to look a little bit different, submitted to him as well. And so repentance doesn't just stop with us examining how does my life come to Calvary and I accept forgiveness, but it also continues in saying, Lord, today, how's my life going to be inconvenienced and adjusted 
perhaps, because you're the one who I serve and not myself. And so Luke's gospel begins already with a little bit of a letting go in order to be able to cling on to what news has been given to them to be able to let go uh, of what they're holding on to. I, I think the question that all of us could step away with tonight is just to ask that question of the Lord in the same way. Lord, is there any area in my life from the most ultra spiritual and hidden to the most public and personal that it's time that I followed you sincerely in, in a way? Or there's a way perhaps, Lord, that you'd speak into something that needs to be different or to be reminded of. Uh, for the folks that are in your life that you're praying for and that you, you care about who need to know the Lord Jesus, uh, be encouraged that you might not want to try the brood of vipers phrase, but, uh, but I think there's a lot of hope in knowing when we set the groundwork for the bad news, there's a lot of hope in the good news of who God is and what he's made available to us. And there on the shores of the Jordan River, neither tax collectors nor soldiers nor Pharisees were turned away when they came in faith. And the same hope is there for us. Will you pray tonight with me? Father, thank you so much for a chance to look into your word. Father, I'm reminded of the old hymn, tell me the story of Jesus, ride on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. And so Lord, we recognize there's no greater place to be uh, than, than looking into the eyes of the Lord Jesus in the pages of scripture. So Father, would you work in our hearts as only you can? Would you uh, do the work uh, to, to draw us towards repentance and uh, to, uh, to establish your heart in our hearts? For change that starts on the inside works its way outside. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that you're the one that does this work. And though we're so flawed and so, uh, so broken, that you're the one that does this through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Father, we commit that to you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.